The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest today is Adam Roberts, the CEO of Born Free. Our last conversation was in December of 2014, so please listeners do turn into that uh, episode because you'll get a great background of who Adam is, what he's done in his life, and why he is the perfect guy to be the CEO of Born Free. And there's a lot of history about Born Free itself. And over the years, Born Free has, of course, certainly grown tremendously, and they've also widened their scope. So um, there's a lot going on with lions. Born Free refers to uh, Elsa the lion uh, many, many years ago, so you might want to get up to date on that. But it's branched off into a whole lot more, and as we all know, because of the uh, death of Cecil the lion back in 2015, lions really hit the headlines big time, and there's a lot more awareness. So uh, we're going to talk about that and a lot more. So welcome back, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back with you again. It's great. So you've got a lot to fill us in on. How about we um, start with, uh, you've got a new addition to your logo. Uh, yeah, we, we, we launched a special logo this year at Born Free, both Born Free Foundation in the United Kingdom and Born Free USA here in America, uh, because we decided that we were going to call the 2016 the year of the lion because there was so much happening around lion conservation and individual lion protection, and also because it's the 50th anniversary of the w- release of Born Free, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, told the story of Elsa the lioness in Kenya and her successful release back to the wild. So having that film uh, first air in 1966, 50 years ago, uh, and so much on lion conservation and lion protection, we thought this would be a good year to designate as the year of the lion and have that sort of as the thematic guide, if you will, for so many of our activities. You know, we ended 2015 with the long won and hard fought successful decision by the Fish and Wildlife Service to list the African lion under the Endangered Species Act, uh, which will provide significant protection for lions across their range throughout Africa, especially from American trophy hunters such as Walter Palmer, who famously now, or infamously, I should say, killed Cecil. Um, And we obviously have a number of other activities that have 
sort of spun off from that. So we ended 2015 with that successful ESA listing decision by the U.S. government. And now, as I say, we have so many more opportunities for lion conservation and lion protection in the year to come. This is really exciting. So let's, since you brought up the U.S. Fish and Wildlife regulations, let's spend just a little bit of time on that because they are kind of confusing. It's similar to elephants. There's Appendix 1 and Appendix 2. Some places they're protected. Uh, Some places that you can't hunt them. It's getting harder and harder to import into other countries, so that makes it harder to export, not necessarily from the home range where the lions are, but uh, where they, between airlines refusing to carry certain cargo and, as you just said, preventing some American trophy hunters from being able to bring back their trophy. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, it's a little confusing. Can you help us, because this has a lot to do with CITES too, and we're going to talk about that a little later, the COP16 coming up in September in South Africa. Africa, excuse me. Help us understand just a little bit how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife regulations are helping lion conservation. Sure, and it is complicated for sure. Uh, You know, when we petitioned the Fish and Wildlife Service back in March of 2011 to list the African lion under the Endangered Species Act, we were pushing for an endangered listing across the African continent. We know, for example, that 35 years ago, there were estimated to be 78,500 lions across Africa. And now the best scientific estimates suggest that there are probably fewer than 20,000 lions remaining on the continent. So you have this precipitous decline over the past three decades of lion populations in Africa, which is troubling in and of itself, just looking at the sheer numbers of lions. But the other equally troubling factor is that so much of the lion's habitat has been destroyed so that there's probably fewer than or less than 10% of the lion's historic habitat now available for African lions. And even worse than the fact that there's so little habitat left is that it's very fragmented so that the genetic diversity is limited in terms of lion populations for the future. So you have this real dual problem with lion populations declining and lion habitat declining, but the threats increasing, threats from American trophy hunters, threats, as I mentioned, from habitat loss, but also from disease and retaliatory killing. So all the threats remain and in some cases increase, but populations of lions and habitat are decreasing. And that's why Born Free and others called for an endangered listing. But what the Fish and Wildlife Service did throughout that sort of um, multi-year investigative process and review process was determine that lions in West Africa and lions in Central Africa undoubtedly warrant an endangered listing. These are animals that are clearly on the brink of extinction that could go extinct in our lifetime where you have some populations that are incredibly small and there really is no argument that West and Central Africa's lions are in fact endangered. Uh, But then they went further to look at the lion populations in Eastern Africa, especially Tanzania and Southern Africa, places like Botswana and Zimbabwe um, and, um, and South Africa. 
And they decided that perhaps those populations being more robust and stable warranted a threatened listing under the ESA rather than the endangered listing. But because they also know that those populations are threatened, that they are in fact at risk, that they are in peril, that they would have a special rule that they would work on, the Fish and Wildlife Service, that said that the only way you could actually import lion specimens, especially trophies, from eastern or southern Africa is with a special permit that shows that there is a sound management plan for the species to ensure that any future killing of lions in those parts of Africa doesn't result in the additional decline of more lions and therefore perhaps an endangered listing in the future. So really they've sort of split the continent into two with West and Central Africa's lions clearly being endangered, but Eastern and Southern Africa's lions being threatened, but acting with precaution before allowing any lion to be killed by an American in those other regions of Africa. So this really highlights the importance of the awareness that one lion sort of misappropriately misappropriately named Cecil for all that history in Zimbabwe did bring a huge amount of attention. So um, I'm, I'm presuming that the Asian lion, the gear population, is protected. Correct. Endangered and remains endangered, absolutely. Okay, so this brings me to a question of these less than 20 some odd thousand lions that we have which is mostly across sub-Saharan Africa, and the populations vary from southwest Africa to east Africa to south Africa, Um, maybe we can understand a little bit why these populations are so different, genetically diverse, and then get into the trophy hunt is for the male, typically. Uh, They bring in a lot of money, they bring in sports trophy hunters, but the male population of lions are declining. So um, typically, I, I, from what I understand, there's usually less male cubs that survive cubhood into adulthood, which is, I'm going to say, six years old to when they're, they've been able to uh, get off on their own, survive, create a pride, or uh, create a coalition and take over a pride. And these lions, I would think, are especially at risk because they're the trophy ones in the areas where there's more of them. So, yeah, the the situation with trophy hunting of lions specifically is incredibly complex. And, of course, you know, the numbers are staggering. So, remember, I said that we've got probably fewer than 20,000 lions across Africa. Well, over a 10-year period, roughly between 2005 and 2014, American trophy hunters were actually killing more than 500 African lions on average every year and bringing the trophy home to America. And one of the things that I've learned as Born Free has done all this research in the past 10 years, looking at lions, lion populations, and the Endangered Species Act petition, is that the American trophy hunter especially, the trophy hunters throughout Europe and anywhere else in the world, when they've paid their thousands or tens of thousands of dollars for the right to slaughter these animals for sport, they are not going to be swayed by specific regulations or restrictions on the hunt. That's why you have this burgeoning canned hunt industry in South Africa where captive lions, for example, are being slaughtered in small enclosures 
for sport because people are assured of bringing home a trophy. And it's why you have a guy like Walter Palmer taking Cecil outside the protected area because the goal is always to bring the trophy home. And so there has been talk over uh, the past few years about ways to try and regulate trophy hunting to make it such that people can still engage in that horrible activity while having lion populations not decline so precipitously. But what we know is that it just doesn't work. That in governments like Zimbabwe or Tanzania, you have significant corruption. You've got corruption in the professional hunting industry that oversees these kinds of hunts. That means that we want to make sure that people can bring home a trophy. Um, And at the end of the day, even if you have an age restriction, so you say that no male lion under six years old can be killed because a six-year-old lion lion is a post-reproductive male, and therefore there's no benefit to the family system or the ecosystem of lions. If you kill that animal, somebody is not going to take the time to be assured that that individual lion in the scope of the gun is actually of age where they can be killed. So you're killing lions that are sub-adult, and that means that when you remove the male from the pride, another male comes in, and the new male will kill the young offspring in a form of infanticide because they want to have their own children. And so that leads to, again, this ongoing decline of lions. So part of the problem with lion trophy hunting is the inherent way that lion trophy hunting operates, and that's what's causing the decline of lions across Africa, or at least one of the significant contributing factors to it. Excellent points. You 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 just um, you know summarize that incredibly well. Thank you, um, because it is important for people to understand that it's kind of willy nilly in its approach and why the listing is so important. And as Peter Cat and others have said, you know we have world heritage sites. We should begin to have world heritage species. So you touched on Zimbabwe for a minute there. And uh, is Born Free involved in any of the elephant things going on, uh, not only from Zimbabwe, but Swaziland and coming into U.S. zoos, let alone China, which is might be out of your scope. I'm not sure. Why don't you tell us? Yeah, well, you know, as, as we've been looking so um, closely at lion conservation, we have to also remember that there is right now a crisis across Africa of poaching of elephants for their ivory and, quite frankly, rhinos for their horns as well. And, and this is another example of Africa essentially being split, where governments in southern Africa especially are suggesting that elephant populations are fine, rhino populations are fine, and that they don't want to be um, cast in the same light as the situation with conservation of these species in West Africa, Central Africa, even in East Africa. Uh, But the reality is actually pretty stark. So if you look at rhinos, for example, just to touch on them quickly, in South Africa alone, in 2007, it was estimated that 13 rhinos were poached. In South Africa in 2007, 13 rhinos were poached for their horns. But in the past two full years, well over 1,200 rhinos were poached in South Africa in each of those years for their horns. So you see this exponential rise in poaching because of the incredible value on these wildlife products, in this case, the rhino horn, which can sell from anywhere from $60,000 to $90,000 a kilo. So incredibly profitable enterprise in killing these animals and selling their parts. But again, 
this is not just about the rhino because the elephant poaching crisis is back as well. Before the 1989 ban on commercial trade in elephant ivory, you were looking at a, a population massacre across the African continent that took the elephant population from 1.3 million cut in half to about 600,000. And we're starting to see those numbers rising again between 35,000 and 50,000 elephants may be poached right now each year in Africa for their tusks. And so you have an incredible amount of pressure being put on populations to supply the trade in ivory. And that's something that Born Free is obviously vigorously opposed to and working to stop. But at the same time that everyone's talking about the trade in elephant ivory, we have to be aware that there's also a live trade in animals from southern Africa to zoos around the world. And in this case, you have elephants leaving Zimbabwe and going to China to be put on display in incredibly small enclosures and in uh, substandard zoo facilities. And then you have the situation where American zoos are actually complicit in this live elephant trade as well. And just recently, three zoos in America imported 17 elephants from Swaziland to put on display uh, which was roughly half of Swaziland's wild elephant population. So you have this incredible situation where, in my mind, you've got wildlife mismanagement related to elephants in a government like Swaziland in the wild, which they feel necessitates the export of live elephants. And then because you have elephant mismanagement in captivity in America, you're not able to breed elephants successfully, have them survive birth and beyond infancy. And so because we can't breed and keep elephants in captivity here, we're actually importing them from the wild. So it's a problem on both ends of the spectrum. And of course, it's the elephant who ends up suffering the most. Right. And, and over the past few months, uh, listeners, we did several episodes with Joyce Poole and Scott Blaze about the captive crisis and uh, the difference between a zoo versus sanctuary. And as Adam had said uh, before in, in on our previous conversation, the difference is the ability to thrive in captivity versus just survive and to make choices, as Scott Blaze had said, to, to decide on its own what it would like to do today, where in a zoo, it doesn't have that ability. So with everything we know about elephants today, all the research um, combined probably creates hundreds of years of information with everyone who's working on elephants, including what Born Free has contributed. We now know elephants do not belong in captivity. So it really is a travesty that the U.S. in this day and age, with all the work that we've done, has, is still bringing in wild-caught elephants. And it highlights, as Adam said, what's going on on the other side of the planet in Africa, that we have to gear up more there. A lot of work needs to be done in Africa to put um, wildlife management into place. It's not just a simple matter of loving elephants and animal advocacy and animal activism, that um, Africa has to come to the table and change its policy uh, and modernize uh, with the science and the data, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And I think that point that you raise is so important because this was billed, and this is, let me be clear, this is the second time the kingdom of Swaziland has exported a significant number of its elephants to zoos in America. You've got five different zoos in America in just over a 10-year span that have imported elephants from Swaziland. And in both cases, back in 2003 and this past year, 
they use the same argument, which is there's competition in the protected area between elephants and rhinos for the habitat, and the only choice we have other than killing the elephants is to export them to zoos in America. But of course, we know that there are many other options available, whether it's relocation within Africa to other wild areas, including areas where the local people could actually generate ecotourism revenue by having free-ranging elephant populations present for tourists to come see, or you can work within the protected area to change the fence line to expand the habitat available within this 14,000-acre area to ensure that the rhinos and the elephants can coexist. So it's really a false choice that we're always given between export these animals to zoos where they will languish for their remaining shortened lives in captivity in unnatural and unpleasant conditions or slaughter them in the wild. The only difference is whether they get to live free and how long before they die. In either case, it's a false choice when there are so many other options that should be explored um, before taking the drastic decision to export these elephants thousands and thousands of miles for a life in captivity. Or um, kill them, allow them to be hunted for trophy and for ivory. As we both know, the trophy part for a rhino is the horn, and uh, there is we're going to come up to this maybe in the second section, the COP16 coming up, the CITES Conference of Parties in September in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So you had mentioned um, the rhino population in South Africa. It's an important distinction to know that most of the rhinos in South Africa, 75%, I believe, of the world's population, are under private management, except for those in the Kruger, a national park, park, and those get poached. The rest are bred. And mm -hmm. hunting is legal, but uh, and that's the only way to get a rhino horn. So there is going to be a lot of talk about rhino horn trade, legalizing the trade in rhino horn. So maybe in our second section we could get into that. And then the only way to get ivory is to kill the elephant. So we've got a, a, a misbalance going on there. And then, of course, all the ESA listings and the confusion with that. So um, it brings to a, a point that... How are we going to bring all the common, the, find the common ground versus, we'd mentioned before, animal activism, and we can get into this, the Cecil Rally 2016 that's coming up and what positive influence it may have or what negative influence it may have um, with this kind of acti activism. Are we going to continue to spew vitriol, and um, which separates groups of people through... Um, I'll, I'll say hate or tremendous dislike for an activity, or can we find a way to bring the hunting coalition? There are good hunters. There are ethical hunters, and there is um, sustainable utilization, consumptive utilization, you know, for food. We do that here, but these iconic species, endangered species, uh, we have to treat them differently, Yes. Well, it's a complicated question. I'm not, I'm not so sure it's, a, it's an automatic yes. I mean, the one thing that I think most people should agree on is that species that are in peril, species that are in decline, species that are critically endangered, species that may go extinct in my lifetime, not to mention my daughter's lifetime, those are species that should be off limits. But 
despite that, even if you ask the trophy hunting industry, they actually relish the thought of killing these high, highly endangered animals the same way they might relish the thought of killing an American black bear or a white-tailed deer. It's all about the experience, the thrill of the kill, and the trophy that they get to bring home and put on the wall or the floor or mounted in their house. So I think it really depends on on how you're looking at the situation. You know, to my mind, there should always be a compassionate conservation approach where we give the individual animal the benefit of the doubt, no matter what species they belong to, and try and make sure that we're always trying to focus on the individual animal's well-being, but also the family system into which these animals belong, and then the ecosystem in which these animals live. There's a, a huge chain of life involved, and I think that makes a significant difference when looking at how we approach uh, whether to overutilize and consumptively utilize an individual animal, or rather try and look at the model of bird watching or whale watching or ecotourism in Kenya and other places in Africa where the animals actually have much more benefit alive than dead. So you just very quickly summarize just in this first section of our, our program here, and we're going to continue on for a little bit more, that every it, it's not multi, it's not a linear issue it's multi-layered it's multifaceted and it's not just simple of taking one species in isolation as adam just said it's an ecosystem and we have to start looking at it it's a kind of a new slightly overused term a one health system so thank you for helping us understand that this is a one health approach um, and that we're looking not just at a singular targeted outcome but how the web of life in this magical system that we have here on earth and our wild world works together not only to support its own life but our life and make it better so um to move on let's let's uh we've got a little time here let's get, let's just get into the cecil rally coming up in um july of this year um do you think it will help well Again, another complicated question. I mean, uh, you know, I think any time you have a significant number of people who pull together to speak with one voice about a significant issue of importance to them and by and large to the American public, and in this case to the global public, it probably will help. Obviously, if it's a, a well-run, well-managed and respectful rally, I think it will do great things, if nothing else, to call attention again to this issue, you know, and we're always looking for these pressure points, these selling points to make sure that we have an opportunity to talk to the American people about the issues that are so important to us, in this case, wildlife conservation, lion protection, and trophy hunting. And every time that we have an opportunity to call attention to the issue, I think it's a, a good one because it gives us that chance that we might, wouldn't necessarily otherwise have to share these details with uh, the general public, the media, and in fact, legislators. And it's so important to me, uh, I think two things. One is to have this rally in Washington uh, where the people's voices can be heard, but not just heard through the media, but heard by people in Congress, by people in the Department of the Interior. This is where all the action is and where the decisions are being made. So it's important to have that voice. But then, of course, the second thing I always say about a rally such as this is the rally is great, but the press will be short-lived. The question is what everybody who comes to the rally does after the rally is over. Do they go back and they write their members of Congress encouraging them to enact stricter legislation to protect wild animals, including lions? 
Do they write to the government encouraging them to take a strong position when the parties to the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species meet in South Africa later this year? It's all about the follow-up action as much as it is the rally itself. And that that helps under everybody understand that at a rally, the goals need to be focused. They do need to be targeted, targeted, and not too great in scope where it sort of ends up fracturing the goal, just like we're fracturing the landscapes. So at this moment, uh, at this moment, we're going to take a little short break. We've got a lot to talk about uh, coming up, so stick with us. And my guest, Adam Roberts, CEO of Born Free, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest, Adam Roberts of Born Free. So in our first section, if you've just tuned in, um, you definitely want to go back and listen to the first section because we laid, Adam laid the foundation of what Born Free is doing, the importance of bringing awareness to lion conservation, the importance of the death of Cecil. As Johnny Rodriguez says, he didn't die for a reason, he died for a cause, and that cause is having an effect, and how we go and move with that cause, and especially the follow-up after something like a rally that's going to happen in D.C. is critical. Not just the rally itself and the coming together of thousands of people, but what happens afterward. Because that's going to lead up to what we talked about, the um, CITES uh, Conference of Parties 16 in South Africa. So it's going to be pretty touchy. Adam, can you help us understand a little bit more of how CITES functions and why this meeting is going to be rather critical. 
Sure. So every roughly two and a half years, so sometimes two years, sometimes three years, there's this meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, or CITES for short. And in South Africa, at the end of September of this year, uh, the 17th meeting of the Conference of the Party will, Parties will be convened. And this is really an astounding adventure in global politics, really, uh, as relates to wildlife conservation, because CITES is actually an international trade treaty that focuses on wild animals and plants. And there are more than 30,000 animal and plant species that are listed under the CITES convention. And when I say listed, I mean falling under uh, one of three categories. There's Appendix 1 to the convention, which is usually species that are threatened with extinction and are in in international trade. And these are species for which there should be no trade that is primarily for commercial purposes and species for which, if there is going to be any trade, you have to have an export permit from the country of origin, as well as an import permit from the recipient country in order to ensure, or at least hopefully ensure, that any trade internationally is not going to be detrimental to that species in the wild. But then you have Appendix 2 species, which are species that are not necessarily threatened with extinction now, but could be, and so regulation of trade is needed. But for these species, you can trade for primarily commercial purposes, and you only need an export permit from the country of origin, so the importing country, unless they have their own domestic legislation, has no barometer by which to keep wildlife species out if they're on CITES Appendix 2. And then there's Appendix 3 as well, which is uh, much less controversial, and that's where an individual country places its population of a certain species on Appendix 3 because they want to call attention to the need to protect those species and also have some sense of regulation to know how many of those animals or plants are being traded annually. And so when all of the parties convene, and there's more than 180 countries that are member parties to CITES, when they convene, they literally examine uh, more than 100 different proposals to either list new species under CITES or change the listing for species under CITES. So there will be some countries that want to reduce the level of protection for, say, rhinos in South Africa or elephants and allow trade in horn or tusks. And then there are other countries whose representatives will want to increase protection, put all of Africa's elephants back on Appendix 1 and ensure that there is no trade in elephant ivory that is commercial ever again. And you have this huge two-week dialogue and political fight, if you will, between the precautionary principal countries that want to do all that they can to protect wild animals from overexploitation in international trade, and then those species, those countries that obviously want to enhance trade, such as, say, Japan and China, because it's profitable for them and because they have a significant market for wildlife products. The amazing thing about the CITES meeting is that non-governmental organizations like Born Free can have a full representative input into the deliberations. So we're able to actually make speeches from the floor during each of the debates. We're able to lobby the delegates. We're able to put on side events. We're able to talk to the press. It really is um, a treaty that actually enjoys civil society participation because you have so many scientists and lawyers who can feed into the process intelligently. So it's a two-week conference, as I say, at the end of September, and you're going to have literally hundreds of discussion items um, up for debate, and literally the fate of some of the world's most amazing wild animals and plants can be decided at these meetings. 
So you, you've mentioned, you summarized that very well. Thank you. And um, once again, it highlights that CITES is also a volunteer membership. And um, a recent conversation with Nick Lynch in Zimbabwe, his idea and solution to the Im Im impending, imminent sort of change, humongous change that's going to be happening in Zimbabwe, uh, some could call it collapse, is perhaps some countries should disassociate themselves from CITES so that they can create their own wildlife management plan and come up with uh, alt alternative, alternative excuse me, solutions, which we discussed at uh, the Jackson uh, Hole Wildlife Film Elephant Summit, that there needs to be maybe a check and a balance to a trade organization, to a um, proactive uh, protection organization, as you had said. Do you think there's any merit to that, that CITES needs another side? Well, you know, I, I don't, and let me just tell you why. I think, you know, I've, I've worked for 25 years in Washington, D.C. I've dealt with Congress. I've dealt with the executive branch of government. And I've dealt with these international treaty organizations, and the one thing I know is that while treaties and conventions such as CITES perhaps don't always work as well as we would like them to for wildlife, I think in, in this day and age especially, um, if we try to come up with a new convention internationally for the protection of animals that prohibited trade in elephants and rhinos and lions and tigers and American black bears and Asiatic I think we would have an incredibly hard, if not impossible, time doing so. So the key for me is that CITES gives the platform, it gives the framework for regulating international trade, and then it's really up to us in the nonprofit community and those governments that support our work to make our best case about why there should be no international trade in ivory, international trade in rhino horn, and hope that our arguments prevail among a majority of the delegates. And um, so, you know, I think it's I think it's it's nice to suggest that we could do better. I think it's unrealistic to suggest that we could do better. And so the key is working within the CITES framework to the best of our ability to make sure the outcomes are as strong as possible for wild animals in need. Well said. So in, instead of um, like the debacle with uh, baby elephants being shipped out of Zimbabwe over to Chimlong, uh, we already have uh, a, a body, a treaty in place that we need to make better use of so that CITES actually does have, pardon the pun, teeth to um, enforce or um, sanction or I'm not sure what the word is, to make trade uh, work. So there's going to be trade in both live and dead wildlife. And just for our listeners' understanding, it's not just iconic species. Um, we're talking about scorpions. We're talking about um, manta rays. We're talking about shark finning. It's huge. And, and you'll learn some more of that if you listen to Adam's previous episode um, of what wildlife trade includes. It's not just the megafauna. It's not just the iconic warm, fuzzy animals, polar bears, panda bears, lions, and elephants and rhinos. It's everything. So it is a huge um, uh, task uh, to decide what is there and what isn't. So help us uh, just maybe a little further understanding of how the ESA does affect, and let's say the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Lion listing has an effect on CITES. 
And the further question is, does it make a difference really where the CITES meeting is held? So sure, I guess there are three things to touch on there. One is, <coughs> excuse me, just picking up on the very last thing you said, I think it's really important where you mentioned that it's not just charismatic megafauna like African elephants that are being dealt with under the CITES meeting. Very important issue, and it just shows, I think, to our previous discussion, the way CITES has evolved. Because for many, many years, elephants and the ivory trade dominated each and every CITES meeting. And it meant that many other species that are genuinely in need of global protection were not addressed because there wasn't enough time, there wasn't enough data, it was always focused on elephants. But what we started to see is that CITES has itself evolved, and now it's dealing with other controversial issues, and for some of those species, the first time ever. So you're dealing with sharks and fisheries issues in a way that's never been dealt with before, and you actually are starting to see sharks being listed under CITES and protected globally, which is for sharks incredibly important when you've got 73 million sharks on average killed annually for their fins and commercial trade. So CITES does evolve in that way. Um, the question about sort of how the ESA fits in with CITES and where the real teeth in is again another good question. And each country that is a member of CITES is supposed to have legislation at the national level domestically to implement the convention. And for us in America, that tool, that legislative implementing tool is the Endangered Species Act. So not only does the ESA deal with American wild species and protection for species here in America, it also deals with foreign species and it is the implementing tool for CITES. But they also tend to work hand in hand. And by that, I mean the U.S. has long been a leader at CITES meetings in advocating for um, conservation principles and protection of species in need. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with lions at the next CITES meeting, given that the Endangered Species Act listing has now come into effect. So you've got a real global show of force for lion protection when the U.S. government has said lions deserve protection under the Endangered Species Act. You've got other governments such as Australia and France who have declared that they will not allow any imports of lion trophies anymore because they don't want to participate in that destructive trade. And you're starting to see this groundswell of global protection for lions coming in at the same time that CITES should be considering an uplisting for lions from Appendix 2, which I discussed before, to Appendix 1, thereby cutting off commercial trade in lion parts, claws and teeth, for example, and making it much harder because you'll need both the export permit and the import permit to cut down on the number of lions that are killed as trophies every year. So there really is that sort of connection between what happens in the U.S. with the ESA and what then happens at CITES with the same discussion for the same species. And let's not forget the lion bone trade also. So this sort of brings us back to South Africa, and we've covered this topic a lot in previous episodes, but maybe we can touch on it a little bit, how tricky the sticky wicket gets with the canned hunting industry and the Professional Hunters Association of South Africa, FASA, has... Um, publicly announced and stated that it's going to slightly disassociate itself from there and come up with new management plans. And um, so by the end of the day, 
hopefully when we get a handle on canned hunting and listen to other episodes, we don't have to fully go into that here, that it will narrow the field of how many lions are actually at risk because there's no genetic diversity really. They, they don't, a canned lion doesn't participate in conservation at all. It's like a cow. It's just bred, to, as Chris Mercer says, for the bullet. So um, canned lions don't really have a place in the conservation overall, but it does have an effect, in, and especially since the meeting is going to take place in South Africa, this canned population of lions is going to be quite a topic. Um, so maybe it's, it's a question. If we're going to allow continuing of killing lions, is it better to have a farmed lion that has no real diversity or conservation value? Is it better to, if we need people like Mr. Palmer and other people who enjoy the sport of killing for a trophy, is it better to have a population strictly for that and leave the wild lions alone? Well, so let me say two things. One is you've triggered something that I was going to say at the end of the last um, response where I said I had three things to say and I forgot the third one by the time I finished. Uh, but you were mentioning sort of the venue of the CITES meeting and whether that has relevance. And the answer to that is yes, I clearly think it does. And we, I think, really first saw that back in 1997 when the CITES meeting was held in Harare, Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe was a nation that wanted very much to trade in African elephant ivory and they sort of had home field advantage, if you will, to try and make that happen. And at that meeting, every morning, the newspaper was something pro-ivory. And of course, the Zimbabwe Herald was run by Robert Mugabe's administration. The newspaper was not a free press. And so it was very partisan government rhetoric about individual countries that were coming out on a daily basis in support of the ivory trade. Now, no one expected Japan not to be supportive of the ivory trade or Tanzania or uh, some of these other countries, but, but being in Zimbabwe was part of what led to the result of having Zimbabwe's elephant population downlisted from Appendix 1 to Appendix 2 at that meeting. So similarly, I think at this meeting, having South Africa hosting the meeting could have a negative impact on some discussions. In this case, it might be rhinos because we know that South Africa has a governmental interest in opening up a legal trade in rhino horn once again, especially to benefit certain individuals who are quote unquote in South Africa farming rhinos for the purpose of killing them and selling the horns or cutting off the horns and selling the horns. But of course, what we know for certain is that as soon as you have any kind of legal trade in rhino horn, even if it's from horns that were removed from captive rhinos, you're going to have people poach rhinos, kill them for the horns, and then launder those same horns into the legal trade. And that comes back to your last question about the impact of the canned hunting industry on wild populations and the relationship between breeding of lions in captivity for the bullet or killing them in the wild. And it's a complicated question because of this. These actions don't ever exist in a vacuum. So the question can never really be, would we prefer, if you're going to kill a lion, to kill a captive-bred, captive-raised, captive-held lion uh, because that lion doesn't have a connection to the wild and therefore isn't of conservation value as opposed to the wild lion. And the reason I say it's not an easy one that exists in uh, a vacuum is that on the one hand, you have those animals that are bred and killed in captivity probably being treated much more inhumanely for their shortened lives than the wild lion that's able to live in the wild and live free until they're killed. 
But secondly, we also know that these lions are having, um, or these lion canned hunting lion operations are having lions from the wild pulled in to supplement the individuals that are internally held there. So it actually has a conservation risk associated because not all the lions that are being killed in these operations are bred in these operations. And the more we talk about trophy hunting and somehow allow canned hunting of lions to put the pole of um, acceptability on the practice, the more you're going to have pressure on wild lions to be killed just the same. So really, it's all looking at trophy hunting, especially of lions, as one thing, as one action, because what happens in the breeding facilities and the canned hunting facilities in South Africa does have an impact on wild conservation of the species as well. Thank you. That was really wonderful. So, um, and once again, several previous episodes do speak to what Adam has said in further detail, but you've summed it up and put the pieces of this puzzle together very, very well. So the country, of, the host country of the CO, the, Convent, the CITES COP meeting of parties does have an effect and it can be positive or it can be negative. And we saw that previously in the sales of ivory and what that did to increase the poaching of elephants. And now we're going to face it with lions. So I have the feeling lions and rhino are going to be very on top of the list in South Africa. And it'll be interesting to see what happens and uh, in terms of canned hunting and in terms of uh, rhino breeding. So it's, it's, it's industrialization and farming of wildlife. And there's also the psychological um, part to this. You know, a wild lion, you know, the romanticized vision is that you're out there tracking it and fair chase hunting that the lion has equal opportunity to get away. But the psychological psychological aspect to this is a wild animal it has a spirit so therefore it's fought in its life and when we ingest that animal we are imbuing ourselves with its spirit and its strength and some of this goes into tiger farming that tiger farming is putting more pressure on wild tigers because they don't have the same um, ethereal sort of spirit so I think do you think that will come into play at all well, yeah, I think so. And it's also a very good point. You know, when we look at these, you know, again, I say never look at it in a vacuum. And, and the tiger farming point is an incredibly good one. In, in almost all situations, when dealing with very valuable charismatic megafauna, the tiger, the rhino, the bear, captive breeding does nothing to relieve pressure from the wild populations. So in the early 1980s, you had bear farms start, start to crop up in Asia, especially in China, and ostensibly this was to take away the pressure from the Asiatic black bear in the wild across Asia that was being killed for the gallbladders to go into the traditional medicine trade. And as people in Asia, especially again in China, but also in the Republic of Korea, South Korea, as their wealth increased and their desire for bare gallbladders and bare bile increased, you had more pressure on the wild population and you also had this product being no longer used only in traditional medicines in the pharmacopoeia that existed for thousands of years in Asia, but it was also being used in hemorrhoid creams and shampoos and hair tonics. So it expanded use because demand started to rise. And so you had these bear farming industries 
crop up where the bears were incredibly cruelly kept. They're kept in small cages where they can't turn around and they've got a, a steel catheter inserted into their gallbladder to literally milk them for their bile. Sometimes their paws will be cut off to go for bear paw soup at $300 a bowl. You had this incredibly cruel industry, but it did nothing to relieve the pressure for the wild Asiatic bear population. And quite the contrary, as global demand for bear parts grew, so too did the pressure against about killing bears globally in the wild. So from coast to coast across America now, we're seeing bear carcasses where the paws are cut off and the gallbladders are ripped out to feed that trade, despite the fact that bears are being quote-unquote farmed, they're being kept in captivity in China, Korea, and elsewhere. So you see it time and time again, tigers in India continue to be poached, despite the fact that there's an international ban on the trade in tiger bones, tiger skins, tiger claws, tiger teeth, and tigers are being farmed in China intensively to supply the domestic market. So it does nothing to relieve that pressure. If nothing else, it actually increases the demand because it increases this concept of accessibility, availability um, for the products and the parts that come from these wild animals. So it creates a further spin, it, it creates a, a, I'm going to use the word false market for spinoff since there's this perception that, oh, we can breed them anytime like rabbits and use them. Well, yes, and, and quite frankly, you know, the, the example that you used is an important one in terms of lion bone because we're starting to see more and more that lion bones are being shipped globally, not just the trophies and other parts, because they're starting to supplement the tiger bone trade in Asia with lion bones, which means as tiger populations have plummeted from 100,000 back at the turn of the 20th century to about 3,000 today, you're starting to see the lack of availability of tiger bone. And so lions are being killed for their bones as well, or lions from the canned hunts in South Africa are having their bones shipped to Laos as well. So you're starting to see all of this additional pressure on lions that we already know are in precipitous decline. And you may very well end up with a situation where both tigers and lions across Africa and Asia are being pushed to extinction because of the commercial trade in their parts, in this case, perhaps their bones. And then we haven't even addressed the exotic pet industry where we keep these um, in, as in, in, in captivity for uh, a misguided sense of love and protection. So I do think you addressed some of that in your previous episode with us. So um, this you, you brought up some incredibly amazing points. And does CITES address any of this sort of, I'm going to call it psychology of what we just talked about? Well, CITES definitely does look at demand side of things. And again, remember I said before, CITES is fundamentally an international trade treaty. And so they're only looking at the movement of animals and plants from one country to another, how, how it crosses international borders. But there have been many statements about the need to ensure that individual animals are treated humanely, that, for example, when shipping live animals, the destinations for those live animals should be suitably equipped to house and care for those individual animals, that any destination has to be what they consider appropriate and acceptable. So there are some ways to look at individual animal mortality or the living conditions of live animals that are shipped globally and that demand that parties to societies should take significant measures to try and reduce demand for 
for instance, tiger bone in a concerted effort to try and save the species. So really, there is an opportunity to inject this discussion and to use the CITES platform as a mechanism for talking about demand reduction Stop looking for ways to get elephant ivory, rhino horn, tiger bone. You can actually use the CITES platform to talk about those very important issues of global demand. And on that note, a very important issue is coming up on April 30th in Kenya to make a statement to reduce the demand for elephants. The Kenya Ivory Burn, they're going to be burning 120 tons of ivory. It's not all that they have in stock. The rest is um, still under investigation or parts of investigations. And they're also going to be burning um, a lot of rhino horn. Uh, Born Free is going to be there, correct? Yeah, we have an office in Kenya, Nairobi, Born Free Foundation Kenya, and we'll send uh, representatives to the ivory burn. And of course, you know, we had people there in 1989 when Kenya burned its ivory as well, leading the charge for this global ban on commercialization of ivory. And I had the privilege of being at an ivory destruction twice in America recently, uh, one out in Denver, Colorado, and one in New York's Times Square, where the Department of the Interior crushed tons and tons of confiscated ivory and a global show of support for permanently removing ivory from the marketplace and ensuring that it can never again have value to those poachers and profiteers who want to try and commercialize on the death of of elephants. And so I think it's an important symbolic event, but one that's also happening globally. More and more governments are destroying their ivory as a way of saying elephants are the only ones who should have their tusks and people should never consume ivory themselves. And you made a very important point. The whole point is to give ivory without the elephant no have it have no value so crushing it i was at the denver crush and as you said there's been a lot of crushing even in china and uh in japan that they have stepped up to this a bit but at the same time they're also importing elephants and you could you know possibly think it's plausible you know starting their own internal ivory trade with their own elephants um it's not uh totally improbable to think of a a, a living cash so to speak, but um, in in crushing it, we still have ivory, and then there get, gets to be the whole discussion of what should we do with this crushed ivory, make a sculpture out of it, which they did in Botswana, which now requires 24-7 uh, security because it's still ivory. So reducing it to ash literally gives it no value whatsoever, and it's not easy to burn. Exactly right, and that's why we had two industrial-strength rock crushers in the U.S. to try and pulverize that ivory to a size that it would have no commercial or market value. And I think the Fish and Wildlife Service is yet undetermined uh, in terms of what they're going to do with it. There was uh, some idea of, uh, of uh, putting it in zoos to try and educate people about the elephant's um, plight and their other opportunities for discussion. But the bottom line is I think it has a great global resonance when you have these public destructions of ivory, and I think that's hugely important. Absolutely, and it has made a, a big difference. As we've both talked to in previous episodes, 
2015 was a very difficult year for wildlife. Wildlife crime, illegal trafficking has intensified the cartels, uh, the money laundering, everything. It's leaking everywhere. It's taking effect everywhere. So I'm thrilled that you're going to be at uh, the CITES meeting and at the Ivory Burn. We'll have a Wild Eyes. We'll have representation there also. So hopefully we'll get to talk to your representation in Kenya and we can carry on this conversation. And then perhaps um, after CITES, I would love to have a conversation with you to see what and help our listeners understand what took place. Absolutely. That'd be great. And unfortunately, Adam, you know, I could talk to you for hours. There's so <laughs> much going on and you're so eloquent and have such a grasp on the huge scope of what's going on. But we're out of time. So um, I, I don't even have a last minute to say, you know, what would you like to tell us? Because I think you did a great job through the, this entire episode. It's really important information. So I guess I'll uh, just say thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to uh, help our listeners understand the scope of what's going on. It's my pleasure. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much and safe travels and we'll see you at the burn. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. <laughs>